Welcome to This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Now is your chance to get caught up in all that's happening in technology around Akron and the rest of the world. Now here's your host, Gene Destro. Big news this week from the Ohio National Guard, which for the very first time recently brought in a civilian cybersecurity expert to help deal with a ransomware attack on a state agency. While they weren't willing to share information about exactly which agency's network was compromised, Colonel Taryn Williams was able to share their approach to dealing with ransomware attacks and to talk about how bringing in civilian cyber experts to help out is working so far. We always recommend to them that they do not pay the ransom. But we obviously can't advise them not to. We just recommend that they don't. The one thing that I will tell you is, and I know this is kind of a statement of the obvious, but if they pay the ransom, then that only encourages those folks that are out there doing ransomware to continue to do that. And that's why we recommend that you don't do that. But again, you have to weigh the risk. Do you look at this as something that's going to be growing, that more people will be involved in this? Is this the wave of the future then? This was our first time, and it went smoothly. We activate guardsmen all the time, but this was the first time activating a civilian. So it certainly was a pilot, if you will, and everything went well. All the paperwork and everything else that was involved in getting that civilian into action, and he did a phenomenal job as well. So I would tell you that absolutely the success of this instance opens the door for opportunity down the road in terms of not only doing it again, but also potentially utilizing more of the Ohio Cyber Reserve. If you're a civilian cybersecurity professional and would like to become part of the Ohio Cyber Reserve, you can apply now at ohioc3.org. Also today, news about a study on some of the lingering effects of COVID-19. CBS News correspondent Nancy Chen has the story. Canadian researchers say the loss of smell and taste after a COVID infection may last up to five months. Over 800 healthcare workers with COVID participated in the study. More than 70% of them lost their sense of smell and about 65% lost their sense of taste. Meanwhile, CNET's Brian Cooley has word about some new technology that could one day help people with some of those symptoms. Gentex, a company probably best known for making the rearview mirror in your car, is showing a new nanofiber technology that can smell. VaporSense Tech smells by capturing gas particles in a nanofiber mesh and measuring the unique electrical resistance fingerprint of one vapor versus another. Imagine its use in military gear to sniff out bio-warfare agents, in a car to detect alcohol on a driver, the scent of food gone bad, a super-sophisticated smoke detector, or even a future phone that can sniff produce at the grocery store to tell you when it's ripe. Then multiply those uses by the fact that COVID-19 seems to be creating a sub-pandemic of people losing their sense of smell, perhaps forever. Suddenly, tech that can smell might be tech that can save or seriously improve lives. Know what's next at CNET. President Joe Biden signing an executive order this week seeking to strengthen America's supply chains in several sectors, including semiconductor chips. The chip shortage brought on by high demand for consumer products like laptop computers has had a serious impact on other sectors of the economy, like the automotive industry. In fact, Ford says a lack of chips 
could cut the company's production by up to 20% in the first quarter. To find out more about why that's all happening, we talked to Mike Walker. He's a senior director of applied innovation at Microsoft based in North Canton, and is the author of a new book called Rewire, Using the Digital Ecosystem Playbook to Reinvent Your Business. Everyone started to work from home, and everyone was buying webcams. Everyone was buying tablets and computers and phones, etc. And so the electronics industry started to boom. All these things that required these chipsets had skyrocketed as a result. Now, also, as an unintended consequence, is we had both geopolitical and consumer-driven trends around things like electric cars. The, the impetus for these new emerging areas like renewables, an example would be you know, what I said around electric cars, which requires more chipsets. So what's happening now? Now the demand for these chipsets have exploded We've got a brittle supply chain. We've got a pandemic where you've got forced social distancing within a factory. So now your workforce is cut in half. Also, we've got shutdowns and lockdowns that are happening in certain areas of the world. And then we have global trade wars on top of that, where it's completely eliminating certain certain providers from the mix. So it's really the perfect storm. And at the center of it all, which kind of lit the fire of a problem that was just lurking under the surface. It may not have been a problem if we kind of slowly reached this point, but since there was that catalyst for that demand of consumer electronics, that's what really kind of exposed all of this. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So how are we going to resolve this? Is it going to take a long time or are there some new innovations with regard to handling supply chain issues maybe that are being used now that's going to kind of smooth it all out maybe within the next six months or so? What are we looking at time-wise? You know, time-wise, the semiconductor industry, I mean, they've been downgraded over the past fiscal year by $55 billion. That's revenue that their shareholders want to see. And so I think when we talk about how this gets resolved and the pace in which it will be resolved, these companies, and based on my conversations with some of them, not all of them, but a few of the big ones, is that this is a top priority for them, fixing the supply chain and getting it back up and running. And not necessarily, you know, I haven't heard too much about band-aiding the supply chain, there's more of a problem of consensus across the globe that will probably take longer to get all these global companies to agree on what are the right consortiums and nonprofits, et cetera, that are going to manage this global supply chain. Because you do have digital giants, which are digital first companies like a Amazon or a Tencent or Alibaba that are trying to reinvent the global supply chain already. So you've got Alibaba, as an example, has gone on record to say they want to create the global supply chain, and they're building out the infrastructure to be able to do that. And so I think one part of this problem is recognizing that there is a problem, and I think most do. Now I think it's about getting consensus in the industry. The, the laws and regulations need to be agreed upon, and as we all know, that will take some time. And then when we look at the global economy and when we go back to that semiconductor example, yes, you've got big companies 
that are, you know, like a Qualcomm as an example. However, they're dependent on smaller operations in a more fine-grained set of operations that are scattered around the world. And there is very hard dependencies on those. So if you look at like an iPhone, it's sourced from hundreds, if not thousands of places around the globe to get that one device. And so we have to do the root cause analysis as well, which we haven't done quite yet. When you're talking about a complicated device like an iPhone, and you say the parts of it come from all over the globe, so then one solution could be kind of organizing things so that they could be made exactly where the things that they're made from come from? I think for some things that may make sense. The, the reason how we got to the point that we've gotten where we, everything's so distributed is because we went to where the innovation was happening, where the resources were, where the human capital was to be able to create this material to build like an iPhone. And so to unwind all that would be very difficult. And I think most companies would struggle with acquiring all that expertise and centralizing it in one place. It would require an enormous amount of effort to be able to do that. Now, that's not to say that you couldn't kind of have broad categories of things and then centralize that. Absolutely. And Apple is an example of where they moved operations to Austin, Texas for one of their product lines. But that's an example of where they centralize some of that global cooperation in the U.S. And so I think that's possible, but there's all these interdependencies, whether it be simple things that most people don't think about that we have to think about is things like taxes and profitability. If they do move it here and it's more expensive to manufacture, an iPhone that would be today, let's just you know keep it simple, $1,000, what if that doubles in price? to $2,000. Is that viable for the consumer? Is that viable for the company? And so there's a lot of questions that will need to be answered first. And that's it for now. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. That was This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Tune in next week for more tech news on 93.5-1590 WAKR and WAKR.net.